Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, church, we continue in the book of Philippians. So if you'll make your way there, chapter 2, we finally made it to chapter 2. And uh, as we think about the name of Jesus, um, that represents his authority, his person. And before we read the text and as we come to the text, you know, there might be some area of your life that's misaligned with the will of God, with the authority of Jesus. And there's peace in his presence when we align ourselves with God's will. And so I'm just going to just pray uh, before we dive into this word this morning that, that we would be receptive and open to not just speaking the name of Jesus, but to aligning our lives with God's will and authority and, and being under and in our King. Would you, would you pray with me accordingly? God, we, we confess to you that we are a needy people, and that, uh, that our minds and that our lives so often are prone to wander, God, that we are uh, tempted uh, to listen to our flesh, to, to listen to the world, to be deluded by the enemy and the forces of darkness. And Lord, we confess that there's not peace there, there's not happiness there, there's not joy to be found there. And Lord, for, for the individual, the, the family that, that is here this morning that is, is struggling and trying to, to find hope and joy and meaning and purpose in, in places other than Christ, Lord, I, I ask today that you would open our eyes to behold uh, the wonder and the beauty of Jesus, God, that we would be reminded as a church that he is the, the substance of our unity and God, that under his lordship, we, we can be a team for him on mission. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would, you would help me to communicate well the word uh, that you have given to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of chapter 1, we saw Paul telling us, urging us to, to contend for the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel, to contend for the gospel, and to do so, that, that is how we live as citizens, living worthy of the gospel. And, and then in 28 through 30, Paul says, look, I, I know that this can be a fearful thing, but don't be afraid, uh, and don't be surprised when you suffer, because suffering for the sake of the gospel is actually a grace that has been given to us by God. Now, it's, it's unusual for us to think of suffering as a grace, perhaps, but it confirms that we're in a real spiritual battle, that it really matters, and that those who live for the sake of the gospel are indeed saved by God. It, it might be tough now to live for Jesus, uh, but King Jesus will return, and when He uh, raises those up to be judged, we will be among those who are the sheep. We will not be cast to everlasting destruction but we will be those who inherit the kingdom in full when our king returns. And so 
It's this note of standing firm for the gospel and this reality that there will be suffering in that in this lifetime that leads Paul into chapter 2, and we will read the first four verses together this morning. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In these verses, Paul returns to the theme of unity. It's a theme that we've already seen when he told us to stand firm for the gospel in the one Holy Spirit up in verse 27 of chapter 1. It's it's a theme that he touched on when he told us that we strive side by side as one or as one man for the faith of the gospel. This, This unity, this call to unity makes sense, right? To wage and win the spiritual war against the world system, against our own sinful flesh and desires, and against the forces of darkness that are allied against us, we have to wage war together. But you know, there have been many teams over the years that were able to unite long enough to defeat a common enemy out there, but they were terribly divided in the locker room. In fact, just last week, as I was turning the page to Philippians 2 and beginning to think about how I would introduce this text, I read an article about an NFL team that had been victorious on the field, and then in the post-game, apparently two of the superstars on that team got into a tussle so bad that security had to be called to break it up between the two players in the locker room. You see, God wants us to be united as a church, not just on the field out there, but, but in the locker room. He wants us to be united as a team. Not just by our common opponent, but by our Christ-like humility that compels us to joyfully put the truth of the Word and the good of the church and the glory of Christ ahead of ourselves. He wants the church to be united and all in on following Christ, our captain. So in verse 1, right after talking about suffering for the sake of Jesus, Paul resumes his emphasis on unity in the church. If we're not careful... Suffering can make us selfish, and changes can make us cliquish. We can suddenly do church based on who throws the biggest pity party or complains the loudest rather than what glorifies Christ. So Paul moves straight from our suffering for the sake of Christ to a call for us to be united in Christ. And in verse 1, he shows us that we must remember the basis of of our unity. What is it that unites us? It's not our favorite college football team, right? It's not any of these external things. It is Christ and what we have in Christ. In verse 2, Paul's going to call for unity in the church, but before he tells us to be united, he reminds us of why or how unity in the church of Christ is possible. He writes, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. 
And when he writes these things, he's not confused about whether or not they exist or whether or not they're available in Philippi or whether or not they're available at North Roanoke Baptist Church. He is certain that they exist. What's not always certain is that the church remembers these things and lives accordingly. So you could, where the if is there, you could really write since. Since these things are true, I'm going to make a command of you, Paul is, in verse 2. And in verse 2, he, he issues the command, complete my joy. But he gives the command with the understanding that the building blocks of unity mentioned in verse 1 are existent and available in the church. So what is the basis of our unity? Not, not just when we're on the field and we have a common opponent, but what's the basis of our unity week in and week out? First, do you see it? We have the encouragement or the comfort of Christ. Yes, there are trials, there's suffering, there's hardships for Jesus, but we also have comfort in Him. The, the word encouragement or comfort is the same word used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit as comforter. It's the word used of Jesus who came as the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And in Luke 6.24, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation or your comfort. Here's, here's the point. Only the comfort that comes through union with Jesus can unify the church because only Christ can satisfy the Christian heart. To be united with one another, our soul must be comforted in Christ, in knowing Him and belonging to Him, not in being seen or making a scene or in getting our way, but we're comforted in Christ. And if we have our common comfort in Christ, we can be united even when it's challenging along the way. Every source of comfort other than Jesus will fail to unite the church in the long run. We will eventually disagree or be disappointed about something. But when we are on mission for King Jesus, who is our comfort, we can remain joyfully united even when it's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient or it's less than ideal because Jesus is the one who comforts our heart. Paul then proceeds to any comfort, do you see in verse 1, any comfort or solace of love. And then he proceeds to any participation or fellowship or partnership in the Spirit. So Paul begins with Jesus, and then he moves to the Spirit, and in between we have the comfort of love, which most likely means the love of God, the love of God the Father. Why would we say that? Because he starts with Christ, and then he concludes with the Spirit, and in the middle he's most likely referring to the agape love of the Father. As Fee writes, Paul is referring to the experience of God's love lavished on the Philippians and on Paul himself in Christ and shed abroad in their hearts by the Spirit, Romans 5.5. So love here is the word agape. It is the selfless, self-giving love of God. Having the love of God our Father gives us a comfort and an assurance and a peace that compels us to love the family of God. You see, to have the love of the Father is to have a sacrificial love for the Father's family. Then Paul adds this, if there's any participation in the Spirit. The word participation, back in chapter 1, verse 5, was translated partnership. It's the word koinonia. It's the word fellowship. It means to have something in common 
that compels you toward mutual and enthusiastic sacrifice. I want to say that again. It is to have something in common that compels you toward mutual and enthusiastic sacrifice. That's what fellowship is. What do we have in common? We have in common the gospel. We have in common Jesus. We have in common the one who gave his life for us. So we give our lives for one another. And this is possible in the Spirit. In verse 127, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul has already commanded the church to stand in the one Spirit. What we have in common is Jesus. And the way we have Jesus in common is by the same regenerating work of the same Holy Spirit who gave us new hearts and united us with Jesus. And He now works in us and among us and convicts us when we fall short. And He empowers us to do God's will and glorify Jesus together. Why was the Spirit sent? To glorify the Son. And together we have this common participation of living to glorify Christ. Finally, Paul, after appealing to the comfort and the love and the partnership that we have in our triune God, he adds this, any affection and sympathy or or mercy. Paul is setting up his command in verse 2 with an implied question. And here's the question. Are you going to Philippi? Are you going to Roanoke, Virginia? Will you demonstrate the affection and the compassion and the mercy you receive from God in your relationships with one another. Hello. Will will what you've been rescued by be demonstrated in your relationships together? In verse 1-8, Paul told the Philippians he longed for them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. This word affection is, is the intestines or the guts. It means to feel viscerally about someone. Is there any affection in the church? Does anybody have passion and compassion for anyone? Or is it all about me and my agenda? Do I, do I have a passion for my brother? Do I have a passion for my sister? Even perhaps if they've wronged me, am I willing to go after them rather than to run from them with the intestines of Christ Jesus? He's challenging the Philippians to act like Jesus acted toward us. If you're a mom or a dad and you've got a young child and your young child does something to to hurt you, what is your reaction? Do you disown them? You throw them away? I'm going to go get a new kid at Kroger? No. What is your reaction? Like, what is going on in your heart? What is, what is wrong? What do I need to do? What do you need to learn so that we can have a, a restoration and a, a renewal, that we can remedy this relationship? So it is with God our Father. So it is with, with Christ who came on a rescue mission to give us new hearts. Is, is any of this operative in the church? Paul is asking. Is there any comfort in Christ? Yes. Is there any comfort in being loved by the Father and graciously adopted into His family? What's the answer? Yes. Is there any participation and fellowship in the Spirit? Yes. Is there any affection and sympathy? The answer from Paul is, in verse 2, there better be. There needs to be. In verse 2, we get the command. And we we see in verse 2 that we need to be a church that's characterized 
by spiritual oneness. This term spiritual oneness comes from Moises Silva in his commentary on the book of Philippians. He summarizes all these concepts in verse 2 as spiritual oneness. In verse 2, we get the, the main verb of the entire sentence. It's another command from Paul. Complete or fill up to full my joy. In, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul tells us he prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. In chapter 118, Paul rejoices that the gospel is going out even when some are preaching to undermine him. And in 125, he says he wants to remain physically alive and reunited with the Philippians one day for their progress and joy in the faith. And now Paul commands the Philippians to complete his joy. What's going on? Paul's got joy, but he's concerned about the church in Philippi, the bickering and the murmuring. And here's what he's saying. As Fee puts it, if these various realities of life in Jesus and the Spirit mean anything to you at all, Indeed, if we really share these things together in Christ, and if there's any compassion and mercy as you think of me in prison, then make my joy full. Now, some of you read that, you're like, well, Paul's just being kind of selfish. Paul is, he's not being selfish here, church. He's not being prideful. He is vested deeply in the health of the church at Philippi. While on the surface, this might sound self-serving, as it sometimes will, When the heart of a God-called leader deeply wants what God wants for his people, in reality, it is showing Paul's pastoral heart. His own life and apostleship are deeply bound up with the well-being of the church. And that's as it should be, right? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says that the church should let the leaders who keep watch over their souls do their work with joy and not with groaning. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says he works with the Corinthians for their joy. Marita and Chan write this, A pastor's well-being is always tied to the health of the church. John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. If you're a parent, you know this well. Proverbs says, A wise son brings joy to his father. Paul, like a father to the Philippian church, naturally longs for them to be unified, and so he asks for them to be like-minded. Paul has joy in Jesus, joy in his partnership in the gospel with the Philippians, joy in the gospel's advance, but the emerging discord in the church threatens to derail their perseverance and grieve Paul's heart, and he says, complete my joy. Don't fall short of being united for the sake of the gospel. And so he heaps up four synonymous clauses in verse 2 to urge the church to get on the same page, to have a common frame of mind, a a unified worldview, an understanding of the gospel and who they are in Christ and how they should live in light of the gospel, making them spiritually one. When Samuel and Elizabeth were younger, they would often try to play me and Stacy against one another in our parenting decisions. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that with your children. And so Stacy and I, I think I got to give credit to Stacy for the phrase, she came up with the phrase, mom and dad share a brain. So Samuel would, you know, want candy and I would say no. And five minutes later, he's asking Stacy, well, what did dad say? Uh... Mom and dad share a brain. 
The reality is each of us may have approached any given situation perhaps slightly differently than the other, right? We're, we're two individuals, but, but it was so necessary for Samuel and Elizabeth to see marital oneness at work and to understand the role of God-ordained authority in their lives through their parents that they came to understand very, very quickly that they could not divide mom and dad on discipline, bedtime, what they could watch, candy consumption, or anything else. How much more ought the church be united in our pursuit of the glory of Christ under His authority in our relationships, our teaching, our passion to make Him known? How much more do we need to pursue the mind of Christ in obedience to His Word? How much more do we need to bury petty differences and abandon needless nitpicking and align ourselves with what really matters? Sophie writes this. Here's what Paul is saying. They've got to get their act together. They've got to quit the murmuring and the bickering, and they've got to come to a common mind about life together in Christ and show the same by their mutual love for one another. God calls us in verse 2 to a like-mindedness and a like-heartedness. Having a like-mindedness that is under Christ and for the gospel. Let's look at these four clauses very quickly. First, Paul says they must be of the same mind. Literally, he says to think the same thing. Then in the next two clauses, he reinforces what he's driving at. It's not just mental, it's also Uh, emotional, if you will. It's feeling, having the same love, the selfless love of God that glorifies Christ. And it's to be in full accord, literally together sold or joined at the soul. Then Paul concludes his call for spiritual oneness with a call to be of one mind. It's almost identical to what he said at the outset, thinking the one thing. We got to be on the same page. We've got to think in the same way. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, the one priority was what? It was conducting themselves as citizens living worthy of the gospel. And now Paul shows us that walking worthy of the gospel pertains not only to being mission in the, on mission in the world out there, but also to fellowship in the family right here. Jesus has commissioned the church to make disciples. He's told us, That that means baptizing new believers and teaching them all that Jesus commands. Not just his commands in the Gospels, but in the totality of his word. What does Jesus say before he goes to be crucified? I got a lot more to teach you, right? But I got to go and be crucified and I'm going to be ascended. And then he spends 40 days with with the apostles. And then the apostles tell us, what Jesus is saying to the church in the rest of the New Testament. There's some people that want to separate the words of Jesus from the words of the apostles that are inscripturated. You can't do that. Jesus continues to teach us about life in the church after he goes to be with the Father by inspiring the disciples to write the rest of the Bible. We have the Word of God, and he tells us how to live with one another. He's given instructions on how to be his church, how we act, what we do, what we are to look for and equipped equipped toward, and so much more. And the reason we want to be united in these things is because we want to be united in the main thing. They all connect. 
living for the glory of King Jesus and prizing his holiness and the pursuit of his gospel deep within our lives and out into the world is much easier when we agree on what God has said. So at North Roanoke, we have a statement of faith that expresses our common understanding of who God is, what He's done, how He's revealed Himself, what Christ has commanded. Now, our statement of faith doesn't replace the Bible, but it does summarize our consensus understanding of the Bible's message, its authority, its implications for our shared life together. And we do this because the depth of our agreement determines the extent of our discipleship. If where we disagree is where discipleship ends, well, you think so-and-so can do this. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Oh, right? So the depth of our agreement has a, a lot to do with how far we take someone in their discipleship. So, for example, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. And you might be aware, if you're familiar with church history, that the church has had some different views on the Lord's Supper. Are you aware of that? Yeah, just a few, right? We, we don't believe that the elements literally become the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. We, we believe, uh, as um, famous President Bill Clinton once said, that it depends on what your definition of is is, and, and that the word is means represents, okay? And, and that the element, the bread, represents the body of Jesus, that the blood, or excuse me, that the crushed fruit of the vine, the grape juice, represents the blood of of Jesus. We're not literally taking him into our bodies when we partake in the Lord's Supper. We believe that the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. Why do we believe that? We believe that because the book of Acts is clear that it is only professing believers who are baptized, those who are old enough to hear the gospel, internalize the gospel, believe the gospel, and they're changed in their hearts and they become a part of the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, it is clear that only those who are recognized as the church participated in the Lord's Supper. So we address the Lord's Supper in our statement of faith. It's a statement that we ask all of our members to affirm. And we do this not because we are boorish legalists, but because we are about the one thing. And if we mess up the symbolism of the supper or the significance of the supper, we risk distorting the gospel as well. And that's just one example. Our statement of faith covers a whole bunch of stuff. And it's right there on our website for anybody to read, by the way. You just go to About Beliefs, and it's right there. Our statement of faith covers Scripture and its authority, the family, the Trinity, salvation, God's design for men and women, and much, much more. We have a high degree of consensus about many gospel-related things, which then gives us confidence and liberty in the proclamation of and discipleship in the gospel as our main thing. Churches that try to have a like-mindedness in a generic Jesus, a doctrineless Jesus, and never discuss who He is or what He's done or the life that He now produces— they always devolve into meaningless nonsense. If you don't talk about more than, oh, well, I love Jesus. Well, great. Well, who is Jesus? Ah, he's just Jesus. Well, there, there's a whole world out there that's excited about a Jesus. But we've got to affirm and believe in the Jesus of the Bible. To be united in the main thing, we've got to be united in King 
Jesus. But I, I've digressed a bit. I, I took a point of pa- pastoral privilege, went off, vectored off a little bit for a moment. I vectored off from Paul's primary point. Certainly being united in key aspects of doctrine is important for our work and for making fully devoted followers of Christ and having genuine spiritual oneness. But, but Paul's primary concern in this passage is more than a oneness in information and doctrine. It's a oneness of inward motivation. And he, he spells that out in verses 3 and 4. And what we see in conclusion this morning is that we've got to be united in the selflessness that the gospel produces. So we've got to be like-minded, and that includes doctrine. But Paul's primary concern right now is that we be united in the selflessness of Jesus. We should seek agreement in sound doctrine, but if we have accurate information and still engage the church with selfish motivation, we've missed the point. Our thinking rightly about Jesus should drive us to live like Jesus. So in verse 3, Paul addresses not just our thinking, but our doing, saying we must be what? Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul's already used the word selfish ambition or rivalry in chapter 117 when he talks about the preachers who are preaching trying to undermine him. Some were doing the right things with the wrong motivation. If you know anything about volunteer organizations, you know that they can become about clout and control and longevity and self-promotion. Volunteers, are you aware that volunteers don't earn a paycheck? That's the definition of volunteer, right? So, so what happens? Sometimes our flesh seeks compensation in other ways. Of course, that can happen for the compensated staff as well. But we, we look for compensation in terms of influence. We can look for compensation in terms of control or visibility or recognition. And Paul wants the entire church to remember they've already received a gift that they could never repay. And so he wants them to work together, united in mind and love for Jesus, because they got Jesus. Paul also says we're to do nothing from conceit. The word conceit is really, in Greek, made up of two words, empty and glory. Empty and glory. And what's interesting is next week we're going to see those two words will be used in verses 5 and 11, because Jesus is the one who emptied himself of glory. He concealed his glory. How? By adding our humanity so that he could die. So all you people parading about and trying to come come into the church and make a name for yourself, you've missed the point. Jesus saved you to be like Jesus in the church, to rescue you from the emptiness of trying to find glory in yourself and to instead glorify the one who emptied himself so that you could be saved. So we glory in Christ and show the transforming power of the gospel. How? Do you see it in verse 3? In humility, meaning in humble-mindedness, humility of mind. Now, this is not a false humility. You've, I'm sure you've seen false humility at work, right? The, the false humility that's like looking for a compliment by saying how terrible you are or I didn't do that very well. And the reason you're saying that over and over again is because you really want somebody to say you did a great job. That's, that's not what Paul is talking about. Humility is a proper estimation of ourselves. 
It is the stance of the creature before the creator, utterly dependent and trusting in him. In this place, one is well aware of both our weakness and our glory. We are in the image of God, after all, but we make neither too much nor too little of either. As many others have put it, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking of ourselves less. Indeed, what Paul says next is very similar. Humility, like the humility of Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart, is demonstrated when? When is this humility demonstrated? When we count others more significant, verse 3, than ourselves. The greatest threat to unity in the church is not a difference of opinion, but the pervasiveness of self-centeredness. The word others here is not a generic others. It is one another. Jesus is calling us to a humility that is applied in the relationships that exist in our local church. In our relationships, we approach the needs of the other as more surpassing than our own. Now, this translation in verse 3 is kind of complicated. You might, your translation says, might say, count others better than ourselves or more significant than ourselves. It's kind of hard to wrap our mind around what's going on here. What Paul is saying is we need to count the needs of the other as more pressing than our own. It's not that someone else is better than I am or that I'm worse than someone else. Rather, their needs take first priority. And and why, why do we do this? Because is that not what King Jesus did for us in our salvation? He put our needs ahead of his own in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he not put our needs ahead of his own? Did he not sweat drops of blood and say, you know what? I'm going to glorify the Father and redeem the church. I'm going to put the church ahead of myself. And now we have that same spirit. We have that same mentality because we've been changed on the inside to sacrifice self for the good of the other. To live in unity, not just out there against the opponent, but in the locker room, we've got to be those counting others more significant than ourselves. And in verse 4, Paul tells us how. We, each one of us, must look out not only for self, but also the needs of others. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, love does not seek its own. And now in verse 4, Paul says, we look out. The word is to scope out, to to be on the search for, like a good server. Have you ever had just a great server when you went to a sit-down meal? I'm sure you've had bad ones. That's not the question, right? But but like, have you ever just had a meal where your, your Coke, I mean, it was like halfway down and then boom, she was on it. And then you were out of napkins and suddenly she was like a mind reader, right? She was like, I think y'all need some more napkins, right? Did y'all need, yeah, yes, I did. And then, I don't know, the dessert was on the house because the family next to you was loud or something. I mean, it's amazing when you have a really good server who's very attentive. That's the idea here. We need to be looking out for the needs of others in the church family. What does that assume? What does that assume about each one of us? It assumes proximity to one another. You you can't look out for one another if you're never with one another. 
If, if you're a Sunday morning at 10.30 only believer, I really want to encourage you to take the next step of connectedness at North Roanoke Baptist Church. Find a 3D group. Get involved in a ministry. Get involved on the parking team. Come to our next men's ministry event. Come to the next women's ministry prayer night, That's a uh, prayer morning that's going to be on Saturday, November the 4th. If you want to be able to look out for the needs of others, you have to put yourself in places to know other people. You got to invite somebody to lunch. You got email Sheila in the church office and say, I'd like to get the weekly copy of the church prayer guide. Actually, the bi-weekly copy of the church prayer guide. I want to begin to pray for the needs of others in our family. Uh, you could talk with Trey Wampler, our chairman of the deacons, and say, I want to be on a chair team. And I want to help set up chairs on, once, on a rotation once a month. And I want to get to know the guys who are involved in that. Are you others-minded? Are you looking out for the needs of others? Marita reflects on this passage and asks this. In your conversation with others, do you really listen to them? Are you really concerned about others? In this age of taking selfies, such a lifestyle of thinking of others is uncommon. But it is the only way to stay united for Christ and to grow in Him. Church, we naturally know what we need. But we need a supernatural concern for our church family. To be united for Team Jesus, we need the others-focused life of Jesus to unite us in following Jesus. We need to have such a comfort in Christ that we can be stretched in serving Jesus by serving others. We need to see others' weaknesses. Do you, do you do this? Well, that guy's not very good at that. Well, I wish he was doing that in his ministry. We need to see others' weaknesses, listen, and rally to help and support, not pounce and criticize. We need to see our own weaknesses and ask for help, not hide. This is the way of unity and sanctification in the body of Christ. It is how God works among us and in leading us to become less full of ourselves and more full of Jesus. Because selflessness in pursuit of God's glory is the way of Christ. Selflessness in pursuit of God's glory is the way of Christ. Church family, we need to be united on the field and in the locker room. And the only way is that if we would embody, by the help of the Spirit, the selflessness of our King, modeled supremely on the cross. And as our deacons prepare to serve the supper, I can't think of a better way to conclude a sermon on unity than in participating in a symbol of our unity. How do we have this one mind? How do we have this one heart? Is it not in reflecting on the fact that we all need the one Savior, whose one body and whose only blood was given that we might have life in Him? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to reflect on your love for Christ, your love for His church, and then we'll share in the supper together. Would you, would you bow with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is true. 
It is something we can put our, our feet down on and set our hearts on. And God, we thank you uh, for the truths that we've considered in your word. And we ask, God, that in those places where perhaps we've, we've fallen short of emulating Christ as we live in your body, that you would help us. God, that you would strengthen us and give us an affection like Christ for our brothers and sisters. And Lord, that it would redound to the glory of Jesus, that the watching world would have to see North Roanoke and say, that's a Jesus people. They are contagious and infectious for the glory of Christ. And Lord, that you would bring others to saving faith as they see Jesus displayed in our fellowship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.